Hi everyone, it's Dina McKay, and I'm back with a brand new episode of Black Tech Unplugged, the podcast that allows Blacks and tech to share their authentic stories with you, the listener. On each episode, the guest talks about how they get into tech, their work in the industry, and lessons they've learned during their journey. You can find full show notes for this episode on blacktechunplugged.com. So this episode is really special to me. Remember I told you that Black Tech Unplugged went to South by Southwest? Well, I know you couldn't see the set because you had to have a South by Southwest pass, but I am luckily bringing you the the panel for diversity and inclusion, buzzword, movement, or BS. So I'm very happy to share with you the conversation I had with two phenomenal women, Lisa McGill and Lisa Godwin. And we are going to talk about diversity and inclusion in the workplace. And what a time to have that conversation with everything that's going on with Basecamp and tech industry not looking at diversity and inclusion as close anymore. This is the perfect time and conversation to keep this topic going and to make sure that people understand why diversity and inclusion is important. Now, also for this episode, there's a video component, which will be on the Black Tech Unplugged YouTube channel. And I'll link that video within the show notes today. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. If you like what you're hearing and you want to quote or keep the conversation going, please use hashtag Black Tech Unplugged on all social media platforms. It's Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And also make sure you rate and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to today. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Again, spread the word because diversity and inclusion is important. Now let's get it. Hi everyone, welcome to the Diversity and Inclusion Buzzword Movement or BS panel. My name is Dina McKay and I'll be moderating today's discussion. So, and today I'm joined by two very special guests, Lisa McGill and Lisa G. So Lisa G, why don't you introduce yourself so everyone knows what you do? Hi everyone, I am Lisa G. I am a creative technologist. I've been in the technology industry for the past 15 years, building innovative products for uh, major media companies. Currently right now, consulting at the New York Times, leading up their technology uh, growth, uh, growing out all their digital products. And I'm also founder of UR Tech, which is a a tech media platform that helps you navigate the tech ecosystem and find your niche within the industry. Great. And Lisa M., let's have your introduction. Hello, everyone. I am Lisa McGill. I'm co-founder and CEO of Alaria. We are taking the guesswork out of diversity and inclusion. But what that really means to us is that we have developed frameworks for measuring inclusion and specifically focus on helping business leaders understand where they can focus their DEI resources to make employees happier, to drive greater uh, inclusion, greater diversity, and ultimately greater uh, business performance. Awesome. So today we're talking about diversity and inclusion, and we have a short amount of time, so let's jump right into it. So I'm going to start off our conversation today by defining diversity and inclusion. So Lisa M., how do you define diversity and inclusion? Yeah, so we have our own kind of custom crafted definitions that we use in our work. And so it's uh, important to contextualize the fact that most of our work in this space has to do with um, diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace. Uh, But we define diversity as the measure of how an individual's personal characteristics differ from those of the normative majority of the organization. Um, And then we combine that with the definition of inclusion, which is really like an action. It's the act of ensuring that people's experiences 
within an organization are not impacted negatively as a result of their personal characteristics. So one is looking at how they differ from the normative majority. Another is looking at making sure that they aren't treated differently as a result of that. Okay. And Lisa G, what about you? Oh, I, I love that definition. Um, so I define diversity and inclusion, diversity as a, a group of individuals that are a makeup of various different backgrounds, whether it is ethnicity, race, social economics, uh, religious belief, um, and uh, like personal belief and culture. So it is oftentimes tied back to just race, but diversity is a mixture of so many other different things, a measurement of so many other different uh, factors. So I, I like to include all of that into my definition of diversity. And I got a corny analogy that I always use when people are like, oh, diversity and inclusion. It's like diversity is being asked to the dance, asked to the party, and inclusion is being asked to dance at the party. Because you can be asked all day long, but are you being asked to actively participate, which is that is the inclusion part. And you know what? That is the analogy we're actually going to use for today for the sake of the conversation is the whole analogy about the dance. But I do want to add another part, the equity part. So the equity part is, are they paying you to be the DJ or at least paying you to use your playlist, you know? And so with that in mind, I do want to just note that just listening to your definitions of diversity and inclusion, it's crazy that there is not one standard, right? Every company, every place has a different definition of diversity and inclusion. And so I want to start our conversation there. With so many definitions flowing around, do you think that's really helping or hurting the cause when it comes to diversity and inclusion, especially within tech companies? I think it could be uh, somewhat hurting, just a tad bit, because... It all depends on who you have in place and leadership who's explaining to you what the definition is. Because if that person doesn't have the proper definition and this is who you have leading up these initiatives, then you know, you're not going to get a proper result out of your diversity and inclusion efforts. So I, I think it could possibly hurt a little because there's not a standard definition across you know, because some people now, I, especially what I'm seeing in diversity and inclusion, they think, all right, we have women. We're diverse. Right. And it's like, no, you need more than just women. <laughs> you know, that that because, you know, that was the complaint years ago. If there's not enough women in tech. OK, now women are present in tech. We're thriving. But, you know, when now it comes to that that definition of diversity and inclusion and you go to a company and you say, well, you're not diverse enough. They're like, what are you talking about? We have this amount of women. We're diverse. And it's like, well, no, that's just one thing of diversity. <laughs> right. Totally. I think it's so important to like levels that on definitions, yes. But like the reality is like the definition is one piece of it. It's like understanding or getting everyone on the same page on what are we working towards? Like, what are we, what are the changes we're actually looking to create? What are the questions we're trying to answer through those definitions and through this work? And I think that's so much more important. Um, you know, the words of a definition or, you know, which analogy you choose to use is less important as long as we're all on the same page about where we're headed with it. Um, and that does sometimes feel like a moving target based on this um, varying definitions. And Lisa, I want to just ask a question based on a comment you made. 
of us all being on the same page. As you see companies talking about diversity and inclusion, and then you actually interact with people who are within the company, or you are one of the people that are within the company, do you ever feel like everyone's actually on the same page? Uh, no, I think it's my job to get everyone on the same page, actually. Um, you know, when we're conducting inclusion assessments and coming into organizations, we've actually built in a step of our, our a step of our assessment is a leadership workshop where we're literally coming in to get everyone on the same page, get, give them the definitions, make sure that they're aligned on the goals. And even though that's not key to like the actual assessment, we found that it's so important so that we can actually deliver insights and get them to move on the um, action items that we suggest. Because if we don't level set on terminology, on goals, on the reasons we're doing this work, nobody's going to commit to the next steps. And so we've actually just, you know, it's not, it's not that we've ever come into an organization. They haven't had some of that foundational work done, but it's helpful regardless just to have that conversation and make sure that we are all getting on the same page, whether that's through our definitions or their own work. And Lisa G, as someone who's a part of an organization, do you feel like people are on the same page? I think 75% of organizations try um, but then sometimes I think where, especially if it's these old legacy companies who aren't necessarily open to change, that's where you run into a problem. Because I also feel like sometimes diversity and inclusion, you know, you know, it's a it's a big thing right now. But if someone was raised a particular way, and let's say they're 75 years old and this is how long they've been on earth and this is how they've been raised it's kind of hard to change a person's perspective of diversity and inclusion if this is you know what they're used to and you're trying to open and change them and i think that's like and i'll call them out ces is a prime example those are older white males who run that conference, that run that convention. And they're like, what? Diversity and inclusion. We have one woman. It's like, well, one woman isn't enough out of this whole entire conference that you put on. One woman isn't enough. So, and I, and I just feel like when you look at the board of who runs that organization, they're all older white males. So I feel like for people of that statue, you're, it may be a little hard to explain you got to open your mind a little bit. <laughs> and you know what? I actually want to take what your comment a step further. So let's say you have someone who has been at the company over 50 years. Now, over that 50-year period, let's just say it was a smaller company and it grew over time. You're usually and probably going to hire someone who looks like you, has the same attitude, has the same thought process. How has that hurt when it comes to diversity and inclusion? Because from my perspective, we're hiring the same people and then all of a sudden you try to throw in a diverse candidate or someone who is different, it's not really going to work out. Yeah, it's a system of bias. It's, it's um, you know, there's a, lot, a long list of types of bias, right? But like what we're seeing is that in hiring practices is where it's so clear that we need to start creating systems and processes to work around our personal biases, right? We can't actually remove bias, you know, as individuals, we are human, but we need to be aware of them. And I think that um, even in, small startups. It's like if you have two founders and you immediately hire two people, the default in the common practice is you're going to reach into your personal network and hire someone you know. And that creates so many problems down the line because you now have a limited network that you're going to be able to recruit from. And when you're in the mindset of we need to hire fast, we need to hire somebody we trust, we need to, you know, all these things that are priorities from a business perspective, you quickly devalue um, diversity and, um, you know, having, um, you know, 
a wide range of voices in your product team and you know all these different things that could actually benefit your company from a long-term strategic perspective if you thought about the value um, that it has in terms of culture and in terms of um, you know voice in terms of awareness and perspective. And so um, we're seeing that from I, I guess my point is like from small companies all the way up to you know the large organizations around the world, we have that default behavior, um, and it's based on some intrinsic biases that we have as humans, and then we have to create processes and policies to work around them, and we have to hold the um, leaders at the top accountable to those policies and processes, regardless of what they think is right. And Lisa G, did you have anything to add to that? No, I, I, I totally agree. Um, it starts at the top. It definitely does. Um, and I, <laughs> I, I think sometimes with me having my own startup, I probably have fell into that trap as well. But I am thankful that my network is very diverse. <laughs> so I am quick to hire someone that I immediately may know and network like, oh yeah, this person's a great systems admin, let me pull them from my network. Um, so that is something that I think most startups uh, do fall into, which I don't necessarily blame them for that. But what I say is this, especially with me, with my startup, all right, I hired you um, because I know you and I trust you. Okay, so we're growing. Now I'm going to depend on you to hire someone of, you know, go out and find someone. And I'm going to leave that task up to you now because I want diverse in my company. So um, I will make sure I have, and I have said this, like, hey, when you go to hire this this person that I need for this, make sure that they're a diverse candidate. I would prefer someone that you may not know, actually go look for the candidate, do a full interview um, so that we can make sure we're getting well-rounded people here. Yeah, it's a, the whole concept of like paying it forward in a sense, right? It's like, yes, I bought you on board. I know you. I know your capabilities. And I also know your skill set. But go find me someone, you know, that's in your network that's still a diverse candidate or maybe a little bit different than us and bring that to our space. Yes. It's so important here to mention that, like, the idea of someone being different or, you know, um, bringing diversity to your team does not mean that they're less talented or less qualified. Um, I think there's often an assumption there and it's just it's completely false. Yes. And, you know, we're talking about bringing diverse talent to our teams and in our space. And so I have to talk about the thing that is always in the back of our mind and we always hear all the time, the diversity numbers within companies and organizations. Obviously, we've seen, especially from big tech, that the numbers like rarely change. There's like marginal change, if anything. And I just want to talk about how do you all feel about that? And then also, what things can companies do to make sure that they are bringing in talented, diverse candidates? So from my experience, um, just lately for like the past two years, I've been seeing companies bringing in diverse talent. They're doing the work. They're trying to find the talent. Um, they're going to all types of conferences, recruiting. Um, and some companies I've been asked to personally go and recruit from like my network or from the conferences that I speak at. The problem is retaining them. <laughs> you know, the companies get them, but then you're not keeping them. So I do still feel like there's some sort of disconnect there of, okay, we're bringing in diverse talent, but they're here and now they're not happy. So what's happening? Um, so I do feel like companies are trying to change the numbers, 
but they're not keeping the numbers. So by the time these reports are pulled, the numbers look the same. But I, I, I can definitely attest to, and I, you know, I've seen it, they're hiring diverse talent. They're just not keeping them on long enough. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I think that um, this, you know, I have uh, my own personal bias here. I mean, as you all know, I measure inclusion. Um, you know, a big piece of what our, our work involves is trying to convince companies that it actually is not enough to simply track representation metrics. And that um, while you need that information and while, yes, you should be striving to increase those numbers, seeing a percentage increase here and there, increasing, you know, women representation by 1% or black representation by 2% is not really much to celebrate. Um, and that while that, um, sense of transparency and, um, communicating that to the world is certainly progress, um, what we're aiming to get companies to do is look at true signals of, um, inclusion. And we need to be looking and paying attention to what are the opportunities that are created for folks once they're in your organization? Are they provided the same levels of access? Um, do they have the same, um, you know, levels of respect? And, you know, do they have the ability to, um, you know, have fair compensation? You know, there are some very basic things, but we talk about inclusion in our framework. Um, it's nine categories of inclusion that we use to measure inclusion in, uh, with organizations and our clients. But all of this to say is that you have to take an intersectional lens and say, you know, when we're looking at our at our organization, what are we seeing um, as it relates to uh, promotion rates, as it relates to retention rates, as it relates to the frequency of moments that make uh, individuals feel excluded? And what can we do to change that that interaction? Because what matters at the end of the day are these little moments. It's like these little moments day to day that start to add up to grind um, that make people feel as if they either belong or they don't belong. They either are loyal to the company or they don't care about the company. They either are excited by their work or they don't want to work with this team. And that has to do with those interactions. And so it's all about driving behavior change and creating a sense of inclusion and then monitoring, you know, not only representation metrics, but with an intersectional lens, what is the actual outcomes of that um, shift in behavior and focus, you know, and, and I think retention rates and uh, promotion rates are a good place to start. You know what, we've been talking about inclusion so much. I just want to just shift gears and talk about inclusion as a whole. And so the first thing that I want to start with from an inclusion standpoint, and Lisa, I want Lisa G, I want you to start with this, is what does a company have to do then to keep you? You know, um, that's a tough one. Because um, you know, there are going to be some happy employees. There are going to be some disgruntled employees. So I honestly feel like it is impossible to please everyone. Um, it, it, it really is because I've seen companies bend over backwards to uh, make the changes. Like, okay, the onboarding process, they've improved the onboarding process because I've started at companies and had no idea they had employee resource groups. And I'm like, well, no one told me this group existed. And they're like, oh, yeah. So, you know, I've seen them make changes to like their onboarding process of like, okay, introducing the different employee resource groups, introducing support groups, introducing all of these various things to make people feel included, which I do think is important. But um, I also feel like and this is maybe jumping off topic a little bit, when you're going to introduce people to these employee resource groups, the company has to do a job to make sure these employee resource groups are being managed and ran properly. 
because elaborate on that a little bit. <laughs> because I've seen it where you know these employee resource groups are supposed to be a safe space. Well, you know, a safe space to, you know, communicate and say or vent how you may be feeling about different things that's going on in the company. Well, you know, if these employees resource groups are necessarily communicating in Slack, anybody can see your Slack channels. Right. And there has been instances from, and I'm not talking about in, in, in no company in particular. I'm just saying, I know for a fact that there's been instances in companies that, okay, someone may peek into the employee resource group of one particular group and go back and report it. And it's like, well, how did this person even find out? I thought this was supposed to be a safe space. So I think, or there's also toxic people in those employee resource groups too, because sometimes it'd be your own people. So <laughs> sometimes it'd be your own people. <laughs> so, you know, I feel like there has to be some sort of governance on these employees' resource groups, too, to make sure that they are running smoothly um, and that the toxic is, like, removed or, you know, somehow uh, managed, per se. Uh, I, I think that's important because you can introduce employee resource groups all along, but if it's a mean girls club, that's not making me feel good. Right. And from your perspective, what would you like to see from, like, a management perspective for the ERGs? Um, you know, I would like to see more so, it feels like a, like a, a click, you know, it feels like, okay, this group is already established. I'm coming in and I have to like more so like introduce myself and like be an extrovert to like fit into this group. And it's like, especially in a tech company. Most people need to understand that techies are introverts. We are oftentimes not seen. We like our work to be seen and not necessarily the us be seen. So it's really hard sometimes for tech people to be extroverts and, you know, be this social butterfly to try to fit in. So there needs to be some sort of social aspect of, all right, you want to enjoy these employee, join these employee resource groups. Maybe there, each person is assigned a sponsor of some sort. Okay, so like sponsorship or maybe mentorship. Something yes. Those lines. It needs to be something that introduces you. But I also feel like it should be optional too because not every tech person goes to a job and wants to talk or wants to communicate or want to be friends. Right, right. But it should be optional. It shouldn't be forced. That's what I will say. Because I know I've started at jobs, especially early in my career. Mm -hmm. I, didn't, I was just like, hey, I just want to code. I, I, didn't, I didn't come here to make friends. You know, and this is when I was fresh out of college. So this is like 15 years ago. <laughs> I think that 2020 kind of opened up a lot of these conversations for um, business leaders that they weren't really anticipating. And it's, uh, you know, around this idea that like, different people need different things from, from their employer and uh, work better in different environments and support you know, relates to everything from, you know, how we're managing families through a global health crisis to how we're shifting to remote work to, you know, how we're creating space for um, grief, you know, um, and, and I think the reality is that we're coming to terms with the fact that uh, business leaders and employers do have a responsibility for taking care of and, and, and caring about the health and well-being of their employees and understanding that 
yeah, it looks different for every individual. And the only way you're going to understand how to best support that individual is to having a conversation with them and listening to them. Um, and so I think that that's a really big piece of, I, I hope what business leaders took away in 2020 is just like paying attention and listening to their employees and understanding that there's uniqueness that comes with that. Um, and then one thing I'll add um, based on something you said earlier prior to the ERGs is, is this idea of, of trust and like safe space and being able to share uh, what isn't working for you currently in this organization. Um, we found that that's one of the benefits of like working with organizations like ours is that we literally collect that information from the employees and we protect the anonymity of the employees um, through our process. So never would we ever surface something that would be identifiable or something that um, could be um, backed into so that it would impact the individual, but rather we're trying to drive the decision-making and the shifts in an organization that need to happen based on what we're seeing. And so um, that level of um, that extra like layer of safety and, um, security and confidentiality is really, really important and impactful. Do you feel like when there are the ERGs or even, so I'm going to give an example of for some of when George Floyd was murdered, there were a lot of comments that were put out by companies. There were a lot of talk around diversity initiatives and helping and making safe spaces for employees. Do you think that safe spaces actually do exist? I want to say yes. <laughs> I, I'm going to say from a tech perspective, you're on a company's network. Everything can be monitored. You know, I, I, and I'm always mindful and I tell people of that, you know. Um, <laughs> so yeah. and it's safe to a certain extent, but you exactly. know. It depends on how you define safety. Yeah. And I think that um, the key there is less like, not that they can never see the information, but rather like, have you created a culture of transparency and openness and, and trust and one that's accepting of failure um, and one that's like supportive of growth? Because if that culture exists, then getting that feedback or hearing that people aren't happy in certain moments or giving people the, the opportunity to express concern is a positive thing in that environment. And so, you know, the idea of safety is a little bit different there because we've created safety and having them able to communicate those things. And we're not worried about, oh, do, are they able to see or hear me? Can I just, I, I want to circle back on that too, because what I will say, um, it, 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 this is a tough, and I, I want to make sure I word this properly um, out of being safe <laughs> because I feel like a lot of companies felt this way with like the murder of George Floyd. You know, so many companies were getting backlash for not saying anything. Mm -hmm. And this is where I sympathize with the companies too. They did not know what to say because we live in a cancel culture where one wrong, one wrong word consumers will cancel you, cancel you. And they would start a whole petition on social media and boom, your company that went downhill. You know, no one, I feel like knew what to say, even publicists, because if your publicist said one wrong word, that's it. So, and I'm not saying that it was okay for companies to be silent. I'm not saying that was okay, but I understood why some of them took so long to make statements because I just feel like in this day and age of, you know, we're in this age and I, and I actually don't like it. It's like one wrong word, everyone's ready to cancel you. Right. And I feel like, well, that's not fair. 
<laughs> um, you know, so I feel like that's why some companies were hesitant on saying anything or just in general, when things happen in the world, they are so hesitant on saying anything because they don't know what to say out of fear of saying the wrong thing. Because I'm pretty sure everyone saw on social media, all these different companies that was making, like currently right now, companies companies are getting dragged for making Black History Month posts. And it's like, oh my God, at least they're trying. That's how I'm looking at it. They're trying, but it's just like, it's kind of like a damned if you, damned if you don't. I think in business, everything is a calculated risk. Um, communication is complicated regardless of the topic. Um, and we overthink and over strategize around a lot of things. Um, but I do feel strongly that like doing nothing and saying nothing was the absolute wrong decision in that moment. Um, and that, you know, it's, it, it wasn't, the bar was pretty low. I mean, it's like, did you actually explicitly name racism? You know, did, could, were you able to say that you stand with Black Lives Matter? These are not really big controversial things to say. Um, but, you know, we saw a lot of companies stand in a position of like inauthenticity or unable to truly, um, flag their own progress or a need for progress. And I think that like the, I, I guess what, I, what I'll just say is that like the bar was pretty low um, and that um, authenticity like shine through those that they could just genuinely say like, hey, we're working on this. We know we have work to do, um, but here's what we think right now. Those are the ones that like stood out and um, allowed, um, gave themselves some like, you know, grace from, from their consumers. I'm gonna play devil's advocate. So what you both said was accurate, but I want to put on the flip side of there were some companies who made these like grandiose promises. We're going to do this, that, and the other. And to date, to be honest, we haven't really seen any change. We haven't even seen or heard an update on their goals. So would you rather hear a company be silent or would you rather a company have the response of like, you know, having these big goals, but not even hearing any type of update on it or hearing any more about their diversity and inclusion initiatives? Those are the companies that I'm like, you should have just stayed silent. You might as well have not even said anything because we live in this culture where if you say something, people are going to circle back and see where you're at with it. That's just the world we're living in now. Um, so they were just better off not saying nothing. And honestly, I hope that we do. So I'm like, I stand on the point of like, you made that statement. I'm going to hold you accountable. That's great. And like, shout out to like Cheryl Dorsey from the plug for like immediately creating a spreadsheet and tracking these people's statements and saying like, okay, let's hold these people accountable. Here's what they said. Um, and like, if you don't subscribe, definitely check out TP insights and like, look at that stuff. But like, um, I think that like that level of accountability, um, could be helpful and could be what our society needs to truly drive change from the top. It's needed, but it's one of those things where it's like, I think the people, the decision makers don't know where to even start because they're like, all right, these publicists, these big time agencies to come up with this statement for them. And they're like, oh my God, how do we go about implementing? They may not know about a company like what you have, which they probably need, um, and they're like, I don't even know where to start. That's absolutely right. I mean, they're they're experts in what they do. They're not experts in diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? And that's okay. I think that's where the authenticity comes in. It's like being able to just say like, hey, I see that we have work to do. 
we're going to figure it out. We don't know exactly what that means yet. And so we did see a lot of that. And so then you see like listening tours or like increase in engagement surveys and things like that, which is like a step in the right direction again. But I still don't think we're there in terms of like the change that needs to come from that, because just because you have data, just because you listen to a few people's opinions doesn't mean you actually did the next step and like interpreted that to say, these are the policy changes. This is the process changes. This is what we need to do internally to truly change how people feel and how they exist within our workspace on a day-to-day basis. And I'm going to touch back on data, Lisa, just because you brought it back up. And all these companies are releasing the numbers. And as we know, the numbers don't look that great. What are your thoughts around actually releasing numbers? Is it helpful? Is it hurting the movement? Oh, I think it's absolutely helpful. I think it Transparency. I'm a very big um, supporter of transparency. I think we all need to be real about where we're at and about the progress that we need to make and about um, working together as, you know, industries and as peers on like, what does this mean? How do we, how do we, you know, make this change together? Um, so I'm all of all for it being public. Um, I think the limitation there is that it's not enough to just track those numbers and report them once or twice, you know, every year, or every two years, like that's not enough. Lisa G, do you have any thoughts on that as well? Um, yeah, I think the numbers should be public uh, or transparent because it reminds them that they still have work that needs to be done, um, especially for the companies who are honestly trying and they're seeing like this major shift or, or influx of diverse candidates coming in. And then they're like, oh, okay, let's pull our numbers. And it's like, oh, crap, the numbers are still low. We still have more, more work to do. And also, with having the numbers, I think, it, like you said, it makes things transparent and it makes something tangible, right? If you have a number, you can hold people accountable. And I think that is one thing when we talk about diversity and inclusion, accountability is just not there. Do you, either of you, have an opinion on how we can start holding companies and even like ERGs more accountable for what's going on in regards to the diversity and inclusion space? Well, (laughs) I I guess I'm going to play devil's advocate a bit on that because I have honestly consulted and stepped in on a few ERGs for companies and they'll say, hey, I want to go to the Latinas in Tech Conference to recruit or I want to go to the Blacks in Tech Conference to recruit or whatever it is that's specifically focused on, you know, a particular group of people. And my first thing is, so are you going to check off numbers off the box or are you going to actually find talent that we need to fill for this particular role? Because, you know, if you're, especially when they're like gun holds on going to this one event that's focused on a particular group of people, it's like, okay, you know, there's a thousand other events out there. It's more than just this particular group of people. Diverse candidates come from all backgrounds, not necessarily race. So, you know, um, sometimes I'm always like, all right, it's great to hit the diversity and inclusion numbers, but also we need to find a person that's talented and fit for this particular role itself. Because, all right, you go fill this number to check off this box, but can the person do the job? I'm actually going to take what you said a step further. When people go to those conferences, how many resumes do they actually come back with that they put into the system and actually even take next steps with? It's very, depending on where you are, it's rare. You know, 
you know, I've seen it. I've seen it from both sides. I've seen it where they didn't call everybody back just to check a box. (laughs) And that's unfortunate because it's just like, okay, well, who says they're qualified for the job? So, and then I've seen it where it's like, you went to the conference for representation, but are you going to call anybody back? So you mean to tell me out of 150 resumes, nobody fits the job description, not even for a callback, you know, at least. So I've seen it both sides from different companies. Because I think, you know, some of some companies are such in a, a rush to fill the diversity and inclusion quota that they're like, yep, okay, they check this box and they have this experience, let's just hire them. And it's like, you can't do that either because I still feel like the hiring process still needs to be the same for everyone. If you're going to have this person take a test to make sure they're qualified, everyone should take a test, you know. Certainly the, the policies and processes should be consistent across the board. That's going to help reduce bias regardless of in which direction. I think, um, you know, taking a step back and and just really quickly a note on like accountability, uh, Dina, from your previous question. Uh, I think we have to like circle back to like the idea that we started with. And it's the fact that like we can't hold people accountable until we are all on the same page about what we're working towards. And I think that like within an organization, particularly that's important is like understanding that we can't move forward as an organization on all possible aspects and dimensions of diversity in the same short period of time. So getting specific about our aspirations, our goals, what we're working towards, what change we're actually trying to create and getting hyper-focused on like, these are the three changes we're really going to focus on for this year. Um, and, And being aligned on them across the board, across the organization, so that people within the organization, whether they're the C-suite, whether they're HR, whether they're managers, know how they can support those, you know, two, three goals for the year is super, super impactful and then allows you to create systems of accountability because you know what you're working towards. I think that a lot of times what we find is that we'll say generally speaking, like, oh, our company cares about DEI, you know, but then you ask them what they're doing and they're like, oh, we have ERGs, you know, like that's, you know, we did unconscious bias training. And it's like, but yeah, but what, what change are you actually trying to create? What goal are you working towards? And they don't know. And so you'll have, you know, C-suite executives that are looking to like prioritize, um, you know, maybe uh, pay equity or, you know, uh, representation of a certain group. And then you'll have HR who's like, oh, we really need to work on the benefits package. And then you, you start talking to like entry level employees and they're like, we're just looking for some like career opportunities and some flexibility. Right. And so there's this misalignment in what the business leaders think that the organization needs and what the actual employees want and need as well. And so I think just, again, like that accountability can really become um, possible through communication and alignment of what we're working towards. You know what, Lisa, you bring up a great point and it makes me think, so when we have people in organizations with diversity and inclusion, there's a couple different approaches you can take. You can have internal employees run your diversity and inclusion. You can have someone maybe come in from the outside or internally, but have 100% allocation to that role, or you can use outside companies. What has been successful for some of the organizations? I know every organization is different, but what have you seen successful? And then also, if they are using employees, do you recommend that? Uh, To your point, uh, we've seen it successful in a lot of different ways. Often it depends on the size of the organization, um, whether or not they're, you know, centrally located or like they're spread across the world. Um, It'll depend on, you know, the different levels of management and reporting and and just how they um, communicate internally as well. Um, 
so any of these can work, I think, but the reality is um, a couple of things are necessary in order for it to be successful. One, um, as said before, it has to be driven from the top. The executive team cannot picture this as a special project or an HR you know, thing. It's like, it has to be strategically driven from the top. Everyone has to communicate that this is important, that it's um, you know, a part of the mission and values, that it's you know, going to drive the success of the organization. And, and then it has to be believed and communicated in that way. Um, if we can get that to be the point, then what we see is that yes, you know, there's this massive increase in folks getting hired into DNI executive roles. That is great. Um, the reality is, though, I think at this point it's maybe like a year and a half old. Um, but um, Russell Reynolds did a study on DNI leaders in the S&P 500, and so I think it was like 243, if I recall correctly, um, DNI leaders at that time, and the majority of them had been hired in, within the last three years. So like that just speaks to the newness of that role. Um, but what they found is that only 34% of those DNI leaders even had the basic um, employee demographic da like data that they needed to understand what's happening from a DEI perspective in their organization. So like that's like step one, right? It's like, okay, great. It's from the top. We're hiring somebody. Wonderful. Do they have the information and tools that they need to actually do their job? Do they have financial support to invest in the interventions, initiatives, and training that they need to drive change? Because the reality is that most of them still don't. And so, you know, you can have an internal team be very, very successful, but you have to give them the support that they need. I do want to bring up, and I see it from my friends and just other personal experiences, is when people do let internal employees do DEI, so let's just say diversity and inclusion. So let's say they're already doing their role 100% and then you're adding that to their plate. I will say I do have a little issue with that because you're basically doing two jobs. You are, it's not basically. Right up for it. So, you know, it's one of those things like, well, I'm not saying you, Dina, but you know, it's like, well, why did you sign up to do it? But at the same time, why won't they pay the person that is doing both roles just a little bit more? Yeah, listen, human capital is any company's biggest expense and biggest asset. And it's 30 times the budget each year in the United States than total advertising spend in, across the entire state. So like when you start to talk about like what we can do to better value and take care of the humans in our, our companies, it's like it's a ridiculous idea that we don't optimize for that and that we don't appreciate or value the people that help us do that. Like I, I like, I'm with you, Dina. I'm like, pay them, pay them. They're doing you a favor. They're going to make employees happier. They're going to reduce churn. They're going to help you recruit better folks. Like, are you kidding me? It is such a, um, it's a ridiculous idea to just have volunteers on this work. And they do do a lot of work. I will say that because, you know. And it's emotional work. It's heavy. It's, I, it's At some of the companies I've been at, there are events every week. And I'm like, oh my God, like how do you guys have, plan have time to plan all this and do your job? So I do get it, but it's like, oh, I guess they signed up for it. <laughs> Yeah, because pe people want the change, right? And they don't, you know, it's, it, there's a thing where it's like, you know, you, you're like, well, if I want to see this change, I have to be a part of it. I have to participate, right? And it's like, that is a very easy thing to fall into. But the reality is that we need business leaders that appreciate that work. Exactly. And so we've been talking about inclu um, inclusion in the workspace. And Lisa M., I do want to circle back because I know you said when you work with organizations, I think you said there were nine steps that you usually recommend in regards to inclusion. So I want to make sure that we note that. 
Um, they're not steps, uh, but we have nine categories of inclusion, um, if that's, I believe, what you're referring to. So when we're looking at organizations and we're saying, like, what, um, what are the moments where people are made to feel excluded within your organization? And that's typically what we're measuring with. We're trying to understand, you know, not only demographic and representation data and satisfaction data, but like what are the actual experiences that people are having that make them feel excluded? Uh, and we're going to typically organize those into that nine categories of inclusion. So those are access and participation, um, skills use and assignments, learning and growth, compensation and benefits, career opportunities, work-life balance, recognition, respect, and workplace interactions. And so we're typically looking at those nine types of experiences to understand where we can um, focus initiatives and interventions and policy changes so that they are uh, quantifiably impactful, like within the organization. I don't know about you guys, but I think those are like the top nine things when I'm looking at a job or like looking to stay at a job. Those are like my top nine. If I'm trying to think if there's anything else I would add, but definitely my top nine for like why I would stay somewhere and what makes me feel good at a company. Yeah, if any company can speak to the experience they're trying to create in these categories, they've done a lot of work and, and, and have thought through some stuff. So um, I think it's a big, um, if I can just like hand this to people and just say like, here, you like quiz them on this. Um, but yeah, it's, it can be, frameworks are helpful in that way, so. Yes, and so we talked about inclusion. And so I have to ask the question to get your personal opinion. In 2021, if you were going to a new job, would you work for a company that is not diverse? The looks on your faces is enough. Because <laughs> it's 2021, like, it should definitely be a, a, a variety of people at your company by now, unless you're saying this is a startup with three people. <laughs> you know, I, I don't see how, if someone's asking me to come on as a tech founder, a tech, a CTO, and it's a, you know, a startup, literally, with like three, four people. And, but you know one thing? I probably wouldn't even take on that much work because it's like, I don't want to build anything from the ground up. I'm, I'm past that. That's. You're gonna it's a different story. It's a different story. You 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 probably if you're that much of a startup, you don't even have the budget to bring me on for some for that type of work. <laughs> um, so if it's no, if it's an established company and they're not diverse, no, because I probably would not be happy there. Exactly. Yeah, I would definitely be looking to work for uh, a diverse organization that has clear like mission and values and uh, social impact in mind. Um, I, I don't even think I could work for an organization that doesn't have a, a positive social mission at, at this point. I totally agree. If someone asked me that, I'd say, hey, no, because first off, I don't want to go somewhere that when I get in the door, they're automatically like, oh, you're a black woman. Okay. So help us with our diversity and inclusion stuff. We need so much help. And then like, that's your new job instead of what you actually signed up for. So for me, that's like the first thing I look for is like, okay, what are you already doing and who's already in there? And if possible, even getting their experience before I get in there, because you know, a lot of things it's like, look shiny. And then you get in there and you're like, Ooh, this is yeah. not what I signed up for. 
Exactly. We, um, there's this analogy we often provide in, in our workshops, but I, and I'll try to just like shorten it up really quickly so I don't get too long winded here. But like essentially the, the gist is that when we're looking at how diversity, equity and inclusion impact an organization, we'll ask business leaders, like, what are the metrics you care about? And like, whatever it is, it tends to fit into a framework. It's the four pillars of business performance, which are t- uh, recruitment, talent, retention, operational efficiency and market appeal. Everything fits in these four. And we basically can map out what happens when you hire a diverse candidate um, and don't create an inclusive environment. And the reality, the result is that if they leave because they did not have a positive experience, the actual impact across those four pillars of performance is actually negative across the board. And so we can map out and show you how by hiring a black engineer from an HBCU and, and patting yourself on the back, but not bringing them into an environment where they're truly respected and given the same opportunities, your business takes a hit across the board. Lisa, I think everyone needs that. Like if that would save, do you know how much money that would save? Like a lot of these companies out here, they had that. It's sad that we have to tell them that they will lose money because of this, right? It's like that whole idea of the business case of diversity, equity, and inclusion. But the reality is that we have that research. And if, if I need to pull it out, I will. I will show you. (laughs) (laughs) And that concludes our talk for today. Lisa G and Lisa M, any final or parting words? I just would like to say that, you know, um, this work is everyone's work. Um, no matter your role, no matter what type of company, no matter what level within an organization, you can be a part of creating a more inclusive space um, and that it's all about behavior change. Um, and uh, I would encourage you to just uh, think of, you know, every single day, one thing that you can do to make one person in the world feel a little more included. And I think that that has a ripple effect across uh, what's actually possible. Yeah, just the piggyback off of that, I think that you know, diversity and inclusion is something where everyone's trying to figure out. Um, have patience, have grace. <laughs> you know, everyone can't be the Ben and Jerry's because I think they're doing an amazing job. <laughs> but, you know, every every company can't be them, but use them as a great example um, because I really think they're they're killing it with the diversity and inclusion efforts. Amazing. Thank you, ladies, for your time today. I appreciate it. And I know that everyone is going to appreciate the conversation that we had about diversity and inclusion today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. As you can see from today's conversation, my panelists and I said that diversity and inclusion is both a movement and a buzzword. I would love to hear what you think about diversity and inclusion. So share your thoughts on social media, such as Instagram and Twitter using hashtag Black Tech Unplugged or drop me a note at blacktechunplugged at gmail.com. Again, I would love to hear your opinions on the conversation and also what diversity and inclusion means to you. So thank you for listening to this episode of Black Tech Unplugged. Again, I'm Dina McKay, and you can find the podcast on all social media platforms at Black Tech Unplugged. And if you haven't already, go subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this episode on. And if you have a few extra minutes, make sure to leave a five-star review as well as a written review. It would help me out a lot and help other people find the podcast. Until next time.